popular atheist named Sam Harris once wrote this about faith. Faith is generally nothing more than the permission religious people give one another to believe things strongly without evidence. In saying this, Harris pits faith against reason. And oddly enough, Christians do the same thing. Faith is a blind leap, some will say. One publisher called faith a momentous decision that lies outside reason. The Bible, however, does not pit faith against reason. Mere reason may not be sufficient for salvation, but the Scriptures indicate that reason plays an indispensable role in understanding what we place our faith in. Historically, the church has said that genuine faith includes three aspects. There is the content of faith, so who or what are you trusting in? There is the conviction or the certainty that the content you're trusting in is actually true. And then lastly, there is reliance. Not only do you know it to be true, you are banking on it, you are trusting in it with all your being such that it affects the way you live in all of life. So faith is not contrary to reason. It's perfectly reasonable given how God has revealed Himself in creation and in redemption. But here's where the Christian needs extra help. Such faith is not always easy to maintain. We live in a world filled with trial and suffering and evil that tempts us to throw away our faith. We too are weak and frail. We get tired and confused. Sometimes we're tempted to throw away our confidence in the Lord. We're tempted to stop acting on God's Word to us. And Hebrews exist to keep us from doing that. These Christians are right there with you, feeling the tug to just throw in the towel. But his point throughout has been that genuine faith doesn't do that. True faith endures because it knows God has secured a hope for us in Christ. We can't see God, but His mighty deeds in creation and in history and in His Son give us certainty that He will save. And so don't throw away your confidence, but have faith in the Lord and preserve your soul. That's where we left off in Verse 39 of chapter 10. But what does it look like to have faith? You will hear Christians say things like, just have faith. And I'm asking, what does that even mean? What does it look like? How does it act? And that's where Hebrews 11 enters the picture. Not only does it describe faith for us, but but example after example show us exactly what faith looks like. And that's very fitting for this letter. What did he say back in chapter 6, verse 12, that he's writing this letter so that you may not be sluggish 
He says, but imitators, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the the promises. Hebrews 11 exists to give us numerous examples of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he's saying, imitate the faith of these saints of old. The other reason it's here is that he just quoted in chapter 10, verse 38, he quoted from Habakkuk 2.4, which says this, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now that's serious. If you shrink back, God has no pleasure in you. So I don't want to shrink back. I imagine you don't want to shrink back. We want to live by faith. And so show us what it looks like to live by faith, to endure by faith. And the next 40 verses do just that. That's why Hebrews 11 is here. Now, I considered preaching chapter 11 in shorter chunks. But by doing so, I think we're going to lose some of its rhetorical power These examples come just like hammer blows, one after the other, to push us into the perseverance by faith. So, we're going to do the whole chapter. Hope you packed a lunch. Won't be that long. So, I want to answer the question now what does Hebrews 11 say? We're going to do that by reading all 40 verses with a few comments as we go, and then I'll come back and draw some conclusions about faith. So verses 1 to 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation... By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's the intro. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance. The last time we saw that word was in chapter 3, verse 14. And the ESV translated it there, confidence. Faith is that inner certainty, that confidence, we saw there, that is produced by the objective work of God in Christ. We we see that objective work and it produces confidence that He is Savior and Lord. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God secured for us a hope. In Hebrews, it's the hope of eternal rest in God's presence. We can't see it yet fully, but we know with certainty that it's real. Faith is a conviction of things not seen. What things not seen? Well, things like the new heaven and earth, right? Things like God's heavenly dwelling place with Jesus sitting at God's right hand. We can't see them now, but there's proof in the way God has already worked in history that tells us it's there. We can't see it yet, but all over the pages of your Bible, the evidence is written 
that the future hope is coming. In part, it's already here in things like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins and the church. Or, consider the very basic point that God Himself is invisible. We can't see Him, but He has revealed Himself in the things that have been made. We understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. What is seen in this world was not made from things that are visible. God made it all by His Word. His Word is the invisible that made the visible. And not a single one of us witnessed that happen. But, according to Romans 1.20, we can look at the created order, the galactic greatness... Earth's fine-tuning, the irreducible complexities, and we can clearly perceive God's eternal power and divine nature. So fundamental to faith is assurance that the things hoped for are real and conviction that the things not seen are real and that moves us to do the will of God. Our believing that it's real doesn't make it real. It's just so real, we can't help but believe it. We're no longer those who suppress the truth. But we live in accordance with it. Wherever that faith was present in the saints of old, God commended them. Speaking of God commending them, go to verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That is, God still speaks through Abel's example. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he, was, he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, if you turn back to Genesis 4 and 5, nothing tells us that Abel had faith and Cain did not. Nothing says that Enoch had faith either. How then does the writer of Hebrews know that these men must have acted in faith? Because he knows that without faith it's impossible to please God. Since both of these men pleased God, they must have had faith. On the flip side, Cain must not have had faith because God was not pleased with his sacrifice. In other words, God isn't pleased by people just going through the motions of sacrifice, like Cain. He is pleased only with faith, when we approach him by faith. Also remember chapter 10, verse 38. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God does take pleasure in Enoch. What's the difference? 
Faith is the difference. A faith that walks with God. A faith that squares with reality. That believes God exists. God rewards those who seek Him. God is not pleased with the person who rejects that reality. But if you come to Him acknowledging God's reality, if you come to Him as giver when you're needy, as the bread when you're hungry, as the living water when you're thirsty, as the mighty one when you're weak, as the rewarder who alone can satisfy you and all your longings, when you come to Him like that, God is really pleased. Verse 7, By faith Noah being Warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So he didn't yet see the judgment. He simply took God at his word. And so God made him an heir. Verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That doesn't mean faith is blind. Yes, Abraham left not knowing where, but he did know who. Genesis 12:1 says, Go from your country to the land I, the Lord, will show you. So he knew God. He trusted God, even though he didn't know where. God was enough. God was trustworthy. Verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Are you noticing a pattern? He couldn't see the city with his physical eyes, but he was so confident of its reality that it shaped his living arrangements. He chose camping instead of a cabin. Who does that? Except Chad. (laughs) Why? Why did he go around in tents because the land of promise wasn't the goal. Something better was coming. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered Him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven And as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Again, we're working here with what can't yet be seen. Offspring. Even more impossible, offspring from an old man and a dead womb. Sarah even laughed the first time she heard God say that. But eventually, through faith, God called into existence the things that do not exist. Innumerable offspring for them. Verse 13. These all, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And there's God's commendation once again. Why is God not ashamed to be called their God? Because even though they never received the promises, they greeted them from afar. They trusted His Word. They lived like strangers and exiles in Fort Worth because they knew God had a better homeland for them. They had the assurance of things hoped for. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You see, He wants those kinds of people to be in His city. He doesn't want people in His city who don't want to be in His city. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he, had re- and, uh, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And you can see this play out in Genesis 22. Right? They reached Mount Moriah... Abraham tells his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. We. How can we come again if Abraham was about to stick a knife in Isaac? Well, Hebrews eleven nineteen answers that question. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. What faith? What resolve to simply take God at His word and obey? Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He barely had the strength to hold himself up, in other words, and he's worshiping the Lord. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Faith fears God above all. When, the, when powers demand the slaughter of your children, you stand up and say, no way. We will not kill our children and we will not support anybody who says it's okay. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Very likely, this recalls the time when Moses defended 
the oppressed Hebrew and avenged him by striking him down. Uh, Acts 7 brings up this story as well. Pharaoh's daughter had raised Moses. I mean, most likely, he had everything at his disposal, right? Family and riches and shelter, safety, soldiers. Just stay with the Egyptians, Moses, and you've got it made. Instead, he chooses mistreatment with God's people. How did he do that? Verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We're going to come back to that in terms of our fight against sin in a moment. For now, let's go to verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, we're seeing here the conviction of things not seen. Verse 28, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. What was the difference? They made it. The Egyptians drowned. What was the difference? Faith. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then he's picking up the pace now. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What a list of heroes! The world may have judged them unworthy, unfit to exist here. And that's not what God thinks. God thinks the world was unworthy of them. Then he goes on. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, according to verse 33, they had obtained some promises, temporary ones that God fulfilled during their day. The promises in view here are those of the new age, those bound up with the new covenant and and the coming of Jesus. They didn't receive those. Why? Verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us. See how he's bringing in his own, his own uh, readers now, the Christians. He's saying, you're part of them. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All of the saints of old have been waiting for a particular moment to come, a particular Savior to come, and make them whole before God. And that moment doesn't happen apart 
from God saving and perfecting us under the new covenant in Christ. And that should floor you. They did not know the fullness of what we know. And yet they obeyed. They endured. Which means how much more ought we to trust in the Lord now that Christ has come to fulfill all of the promises and give us the new covenant? These examples are in and themselves evidence that history really is heading somewhere. God has designed all of history to culminate in the perfection of His people through the work of Jesus. That's where Hebrews 11 is pointing. Have you noticed how He follows the storyline of God's saving plan from creation through Noah and Abraham and his descendants, then through Moses and the exodus in the promised land where God saves a Gentile prostitute? And then on to Judges and David and the prophets, some of which had to persevere through an awful exile. Prophets like Daniel who shut the mouths of lions all the way until he gets to verse to gets to us, us in verse 40, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And we won't get to it today, but next time we're in Hebrews, we'll, we will hear it. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Did you catch the word? That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. What we have laid hold of in part by faith, what all the saints of old had laid hold of in part by faith, Jesus is bringing all of it to its completion through His life, death, resurrection, and return. The progression of Hebrews 11 is all pointing to God's finished work in Jesus. All of the saints of old, when you see these uh, examples of faith after faith after faith, they're all pointing forward, aren't they? Look into the better city, to the better country, to the better Savior. And here He has come in Jesus. Faith always looks to what Jesus does for us. That's where Hebrews 11 is pointing. What then do we learn from Hebrews 11? I'm only going to scratch the surface, but here are a few things we learn about faith. One is that faith takes God at His Word. Faith takes God at His Word. How do we know the universe was created by the Word of God? God's Word in Genesis 1.1. He revealed it to us. Also, God warned Noah concerning the flood. Noah acted on that word of warning. God called Abraham from his country, and Abraham trusted that word. In verse 12, Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. God doesn't lie. He does what He says. Verse 22 says, Joseph mentioned the exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. That's from Genesis chapter 50. How did Joseph know about the exodus? Because God told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about the exodus. 
And Joseph took God at his word. We too must take God at his word. That is crucial to the faith that saves. That may sound like a very basic piece of discipleship, but we all need to be reminded of it. Even these Christians here needed to be reminded. See, a good track record in the past did not exempt them from hearing this reminder in the present. Despite past faithfulness, they were starting to distrust God's Word. Was it really true? Did God actually bring a better covenant? Why? Is it necessary to be so explicit about Jesus here? And Hebrews exists to show that God is faithful to keep His Word. When He speaks, He follows through. He, his acts in history prove it. So take Him at His Word. Faith of this kind, faith in God's Word, faith in Christ, also unites all kinds of broken, weak, and sinful people to the God who saves and works wonders. Unites all kinds of broken, weak, and sinful people to the God who saves and works wonders. Are you shocked at all by the examples he chooses? I mean, some we don't know much about, like Abel and Enoch, but Noah, for real? He gets soused. Barely, he's barely off the ark. He's drunk silly. Abraham had his own doubts. He also put his wife in a precarious position, like father, like son. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was forbidden to enter the promised land. The people of Israel complained all the time. Gideon tested the Lord. Samson had little self-control. Jephthah made a foolish vow. David stole his best man's wife and then murdered her husband. What kinds of heroes are these really? And that's part of the point. They're not the heroes in the story. God is the hero, and they're listed here for trusting God in key moments in His plan. Are you broken? Things in your family wreck? Are you weak? Tired? Persevering? Are you sinful? Have you responded to the circumstances around you? sinful ways, then you're a perfect candidate for God's grace to work mightily in your life. He uses broken, weak, and sinful people to achieve His plan and purpose. We aren't deserving to participate. All we deserve is judgment, but He chooses to save and work wonders through broken, weak, and sinful people who cast themselves upon His mercies. It's not about how great your faith is. It's about how great the object of your faith is. And Jesus is great. Faith is believing that He is the great one. And God works through these kinds of people. God can work through you too as you turn to His Son daily for help. Three, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, not a, but not a faith that remains alone. That's not original to me. That's been confessed by the church throughout the centuries. And we see it play out in Hebrews 11, don't we? True faith in Christ inevitably leads to obedience, to good works, to doing the will of God. 
These individuals were commended not simply because they heard the word and they believed it was true. They acted on the word. That word shaped their choices and their priorities. Right? In reverent fear, Noah constructed the ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed and he went out. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Moses' parents hid him hid him as a baby for three months. By faith, Moses left Egypt. He kept the Passover. The people crossed over. By faith, Rahab hid the spies. True faith acts on God's word, or it's not true faith. You need to test yourself here. Do you read the word simply to know more about it Simply to know more about the God revealed in it. The key word in that question is simply. Part of reading the Word is to know more about the God revealed in it. But faith will read the Word not only to know the only God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to do what He says. Meaning, when He says... I have all authority in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. We say, yes, you do have all authority in heaven and earth. And we make disciples. Or when he says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. We take him at his word. And we draw near to him in prayer. And when he says, cast all of your anxieties on me because I care for you. We believe him. And he's a God who cares for us in the midst of our anxieties. And we throw him at his feet saying, help. When he says, care for orphans and widows in their distress. We obey him. Because we know he's a God of compassion. We want to reflect him. This is how faith responds. Four, faith will will aim to please God no matter the results in this life. Faith will aim to please God no matter the results in this life. Faith recognizes that obedience to God is paramount regardless of the outcomes God may bring. Did you notice the different outcomes? Listed in verses 33 to 38. Some conquered kingdoms stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and we're going, yeah! I like that! Triumphant! We read those stories from the Old Testament saints, and we think, that's how I want God to work through me. I will trust Him to do that through me. Maybe. He will work through you in a mighty way like that. But maybe he will choose to give you this instead. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Some escaped the sword. Some were killed by the sword. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and and caves of the earth. Now, if that's God's outcome for you, are you still going to trust Him? Will you still aim to please Him? 
Will you walk with him? I was in Daniel 3 yesterday. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And their response is perfect. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's how faith talks. Even if we burn, we will worship God, not you. Fifth, faith will treasure Christ above the fleeting pleasures of sin. Faith will treasure Christ above the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 24 again. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's not an overstatement to say that this is the key to obedience and sanctification from sin. This is the key to killing sin in your life. The pleasures of sin are real and they're fleeting. Moses knew the pleasures of God in Christ were superior and lasting and more rewarding. When we see them truly, the pleasures with God will compel us to renounce the lesser fleeting pleasures of sin. After all, what does Psalm 1611 say? In the Lord's presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You cannot defeat temptation. I don't care if it's sexual temptation or money or power or fame or fear-mongering or various idolatries. You cannot defeat temptation for very long or with God-glorifying results by just white-knuckling it and list-keeping. True and complete repentance will come only when you find superior pleasures in God to silence the false promises of sin. This is what Thomas Chalmers once called the expulsive power of a new affection. By grace, new affection for Christ replaces and it drives away the old affection for sin. Or we could borrow from C.S. Lewis. Don't go on like a half-hearted creature ignorantly fooling around with mud pies in a slum when you've been offered a holiday at the sea. Point is, go for what's truly glorious. Christ and His kingdom. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, transformation into the image of God and into the image of Christ comes by beholding the glory of the Lord. So 
Point, delight yourself in the Lord. Lose everything to gain superior joy in Christ's kingdom. Follow Jesus' commands, not as bare commands, but for His very joy to be in you and for, for your joy to be full in Him. Cultivate a heart for the glory of God. The way to fight sin isn't by looking at the sin, but by looking at Christ who conquers sin. He is the true and abiding possession. He is the ultimate treasure. The more we see God as He is, the more we comprehend His greatness, the more we satisfy ourselves with His pleasures, the more the pleasures of sin will become distasteful, unattractive, and unwanted. And we see that playing out here with Moses, don't we? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then last observation. Faith leads to a life shaped by the future hope secured for us by Christ. Leads to a life shaped by the future hope secured for us by Christ. The path of obeying Christ will mean we stand out as strangers and exiles on the earth. Meaning your life will not make sense to the rest of the world who only lives for the here and now. Sorry, I was distracted by a Kenny Chesney song. Here and now. Yeah, that's, it's hogwash. We're not living for here and now. We're living for a different kingdom. So, let's say you've been offered a higher position at work. You're very qualified to accept the position. But, the level of commitment that it will take means you no longer have time to invest in your family the way God wants you to invest in your family. Or you no longer have time to invest in your church the way God wants you to invest in your church. Or you no longer have time for that ministry to the poor you've been participating in. And knowing that, you go in on Friday and you choose not to accept the promotion so that you can keep investing in the ways that Christ has commanded you to invest. Or maybe you're at the top of the ladder already and and you choose to live well beneath your means so that you can give more generously to others in need or so that you can reinvest that money in fairer wages for your employees or maybe you're just getting started, and you might, you might say you're at the bottom of the ladder. Perhaps your job isn't all that pleasant. It wouldn't be your, your first choice. But every day you clock in with a heart of gratitude to God, knowing He is the ultimate provider here. And you do your work wholeheartedly, as unto the Lord, not to please man, But to please the Lord because you want His reward 
And you want His smile upon you. And you want His praise more than you want anything else. In all three of those examples, you will be a stranger in America. Your life will not make sense to people. Wouldn't the saints' lives in chapter 10, verse 34, last week, wouldn't it look pretty strange too? Remember them? They had compassion on those in prison and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They joyfully accepted it. When you know that you have a better and abiding possession, you will be a stranger here. When you lose everything in the path of obedience and still rejoice in the Lord, people will look at you and think, you're an alien. You're crazy. But that's what faith in Christ will do to us. Faith loosens our love affair with the world stuff so we can freely, willingly lay it all down for His sake. So don't get too comfortable here. Desire a better country, beloved, a heavenly one. And God will not be ashamed to be called your God. He has prepared for you a city. In the path of obedience, we may lose everything here. But no one can take away that city from those who belong to Christ. The point here is persevere by faith. Only the Lord's city... Only the Lord's country will last in the end. And only His kingdom will truly satisfy. So what you've already laid hold of by faith, keep pressing on in that faith. It's not just that we're justified by faith alone. We persevere by faith alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.